And Jesus has written a series of seven letters, dictated a series of seven letters, through uh, the Revelator, John the Revelator, to seven churches in Asia Minor, which today consists of the western part of Turkey. And these seven churches form a circuit, a postal circuit, in Asia Minor, follow a, they, they, they're located on a postal circuit, and so this letter is going to be dropped off at each site, but not by the postman. It's going to be dropped off by a messenger, uh, whom Jesus calls an angel. The word angel simply means messenger. You find that word angel in the middle of the word evangelist. Right? E-V, and then you have angel. And then I-F-T. The evangelist is the one who delivers a message. And these are just messengers. They don't necessarily heavenly angels. And now we come to the fifth of Jesus' dictated letters. And the destination is found in verse 1 of chapter 3. To the angel or the messenger of the church in Sardis write. Now, Sardis is located about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira that we looked at last week. And it has a very ancient history. Uh, for a number of century, uh, centuries, literally, uh, Sardis was the capital of the Lydian Empire. The Lydian Empire was a very wealthy empire. And it was controlled by a king called Croesus. Croesus was the Warren Buffett or the Bill Gates of the day. She was the richest person alive. And this Lydian Empire, of which Sardis was the capital, was a very wealthy empire. And it was situated on the top of a mountain, a mountain range, uh, surrounded, protected by three sides of the mountain range. And on the front side of the mountain range, there was a drop that went straight down at a 90 degree angle, 1,500 feet to the valley below. And Sardis was invincible. There had never been an army that was able to march against Sardis and the Lydian Empire and succeed. So in 549, the Persian Empire is the great power that is taking over the world. Remember King Cyrus and the Persian Empire? And the Persian Empire is literally marching to take over the entire world. And uh, they defeat Babylon, you know, the Babylonian Empire. And uh, they come up against the Lydian Empire and come to their capital of Sardis. And they look up 1,500 feet in the air and they see Sardis up on the mountaintop. And they say, we will try to take the capital. And they cannot do it. They can't get up there. And so King Cyrus calls his generals together and he says, any man who can come up with a plan to defeat Sardis, I'll give a great reward. So the generals told their soldiers, and one day a soldier was looking up and he saw a mountain guard, a Sar Sardinian guard, who dropped his helmet. He'd taken off his helmet, he was sweating, and his helmet tumbled out of his hand and fell down the side of the mountain and caught got caught in a cleft or a crevice in that mountain 200 feet down. And he just kept staring and suddenly he 
sees that same soldier about 15 minutes later with his helmet on. He said somehow that man was able to get down there, 200 feet below, into the crevice of the mountain and get his helmet, retrieve his helmet. He said if we can somehow get up to that spot, we'll find an entrance, a way into Sardis. So they developed the plan, a sneak attack, where they got their best mountain climbers and they scaled up that mountain to that point. 200 feet below the peak or the crest and they found that crevice and it led to an entryway into Sardis and they worked their way up those extra 200 feet and they attacked Sardis and they took over the Libyan Empire. And that's how Persia became a great world power through this sneak attack. Now at the time of the writing of Revelation Sardis is still a very wealthy city. And it's the first city that minted silver and gold coins. Up until, this, up until the time Sardis minted these coins, they were minted out, minted out of other materials. It was the first city to dye wool. It was a tremendous, uh, had a tremendous, tremendous garment industry. Remember Lydia, the woman who sold materials of fine purple? What's her name? Lydia? Well, now scholars think that really wasn't her name. She was a person from Lydia. She was from this area of Sardis. It's a possibility. So it's just a description of her. A Lydian woman. Not necessarily is her name Lydia, so we don't know for sure. But it was also a, a center for great culture. It had a gymnasium, several gymnasia. It had a, a theater that seated uh, 15,000. It had stadiums. It had Bands. It had civic centers like we have, like a, the American Airlines Center. It had a civic center where there were all kinds of community activities. And so this was a major city. But the focal point of the city was a temple. Every city in the Roman Empire, remember Rome's controlling the world by this time, has a temple. And this temple was dedicated to the goddess Sibylle. And Sibylle was the mother of Zeus, the father of all gods. And she claimed to have the power to give life back to people who died. And so people from all over the world would uh, pray to Sibylle, even if they couldn't get there. If there was a death in their family, they would pray to Sibylle, Oh, Sibylle, heal my relative, heal my son, heal my uh, wife, and so forth. And so... There were treks made to this temple, and of course sacrifices made to Sibylle for life after death. Now, with that understanding, look how Jesus identifies himself in verse 1. He says, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now these are titles that were mentioned back in chapter 1 in verse 4 and 1 in verse 20. And the point is that Jesus holds the fullness of possesses the fullness of the Spirit, and he controls the messengers. He possesses those messengers, and they do his bidding for him. Those were called the seven stars back in 120. You remember that. <clears throat> now look how he evaluates the church. I know your works. Now remember why he told the churches how he knew their works? It was because he walked in the midst of the churches. Remember that? He's in our midst, and he never really knows what's going on all the time. He says, I know your works. 
Now that might not be a good thing. We always think he's only talking about good works, good deeds. No, he knows everything that we do as a church. He knows what our church does. And look what he says. I know your works. That you have a name that you are alive. But you are dead. Now, notice the word name. You have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. Jesus is distinguishing between the church's reputation and the reality of that church. By reputation, they're alive. Based on what? Based on whose evaluation are they alive? Based on whose evaluation are they dead? Based on human, from a human standpoint, when you look at the works of this church, you say, man, that church's alive. That's an active church. Look at all the things that they do. But from a divine perspective, God says, you're dead. So it's the works that is going to determine whether the church is alive or dead. And from a human standpoint, they are alive. From a divine standpoint, they are a corpse. Now remember when I said the major temple was? Sibylle. Who said that she could do what? Give life to the dead. So that's what you need to know. That's why you need to know the backgrounds of these churches and the cities that they're located in because the language that Jesus is using is language that when it was written to the church, immediately they would understand it. So he says, you're a corpse. Okay? So they have a reputation, but here's the reality. And what separates the reputation from the reality? Uh, the value of their works. People look at their works and what this church does, and they say, man, that church is alive. <coughs> Jesus looks at it and says, their works have no eternal value. Yes, they're going through the motions and they're doing a lot of things, but it's all smoke and mirrors. Outwardly, you look alive, but pull back the curtain and it's like death inside. So Jesus is very concerned with this church. And if I could pull a lesson from this section right here, I would say the lesson is looks are deceiving. You can look like you're alive, but you may be deceived. Many a spouse has been deceived by their partner, thinking their partner was faithful, and guess what? They weren't faithful. And this is a church that claims to be faithful, but it's not faithful, they're dead. Now obviously this church didn't start out this way. There was a time when this church was alive, you know, when, when uh, an evangelist went there and preached the gospel. Uh, but this church, just like the city in which it's found, Sardis, is living off its past reputation. What was Sardis's reputation? We're invincible! And they still lived off that reputation. Oh, that's Sardis. It's invincible. What well, wasn't invincible, was it? See, this church believes its own press. 
this church uh, sends out these uh, publicity statements and they actually start believing it. And everyone else is believing it. And they believe it based on what this church does. And so here's a church that's growing numerically. And somebody says, that church is alive. It's growing. Jesus says, it's dead. This church has a lot of activities. Its calendar is full. It has uh, a large staff. It has a million dollar budget. It has a tremendous physical plan. And based on that, outward appearance, people assume that it's alive and they live. And at one time the church was alive. Maybe 40 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, and they have this reputation. And they're living off that reputation. Jesus says they're dead. You think Sibylle can raise this church from the dead? The God of Sibylle? Now look at Jesus' exhortation in verse 2. Look what he says. Number one, be watchful. In other words, open your eyes. Take a good look at what's going on. Be aware of what's happening to you. You're like Sardis. You say, hey, we're invincible. And guess what? Next day you're defeated. Wake up. See? Otherwise, you'll be destroyed. Open your eyes. The emperor has no clothes. But you need to see that. Don't be deceived based on reputation. Now look at the second thing he says. Verse 2. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. And do it now. Get on the ball. Open your eyes. Evaluate the situation. Realize the shape you're in. And then, those few things that are still remaining, but are about to die, you still have a little bit of life there. Here's a little pocket of life. There's an activity that's good. There's one that does, that should be continued. He says, here's what you need to do. Strengthen those things which remain that are ready to die. Be like Samson. Samson lived off his past reputation. Strongest man, but guess what? He's defeated. But in the end, guess what he did? Strengthened that little bit that was remained and he pushed down the temple. And this is what the church is to do. We need to get behind those few things that we do that are vital and alive. But if we don't strengthen them, guess what they're going to do? They're going to die too. And then guess what? The church ceases to be the church. So that's the second thing he says to do. Now look at the next thing he says. It gives an explanation. For, in the middle of verse 2, strengthen those things that were ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before who? God. Now, to the outside world, before the world, the works look pretty good. But before God, they lack. And so guess what you need to do? Shore them up. See? Strengthen them. And that's what we need to do. Because these works are falling short. Now, how would Jesus evaluate our church? If he walked into the midst of our church, in fact, he is in the midst of our church. He's evaluating it every day. Now, at the end, he says, let him that has what? See, he's talking to us every day. The question is whether we're listening. If he evaluated our church, and he looked at our works, what would he say about us? 
Would we look more like the church of Philadelphia, which we're going to look at next week, that he says nothing negative about, or would we look more like the church at Sardis? Now look at the next thing he says in verse 3. Remember, therefore, based on what I've just said, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. You need to keep something in mind. You need to remember something. Remember how you received something. The word received means a welcome. Remember how you welcomed something. And what else? How you what? Heard it. What's he talking about? He's talking about the gospel. Remember the times, and look back to the time when the gospel came to your area. And you heard it, and you welcomed it, you embraced it. There, there's the solution. You look back when life was infused in that group of people. And each one of us needs to do that. We need to look back. Each one of us needs to look back and remember the first time we heard the gospel. Who was it to preach? Just think about that. When you heard the gospel, who was it that shared with you the gospel? Was it, was it a business person? Was it a neighbor? Was it a child evangelist? Was it a preacher? Who was it? And you welcomed it. Think back what it was like when you got saved. What were the circumstances surrounding your life at that time? See, this is the solution, is to get back and remember, get back to the beginning when you received that life. And for a church, get back to the beginning when that church was, was founded and what it cost those people to plant that church. This is why I believe that it's important for all of us to write down our testimony. Every single person, doesn't that be fancy? No one else has to even see it. It's for your benefit. Remember the time you welcomed the gospel? Remember the time you heard the gospel and you embraced it? Write it down. Tell put, put a little note to yourself. I was so-and-so age. Here was the circumstances of my life. Here's the person that shared the gospel with. Here's what I did. Here's how I embraced it. He says, you need to remember when you got life. And then look what he says in the middle of verse 3. Hold fast. Don't let it slip away. That's what this church is doing. They're letting it all slip away. He says you need to hold fast. Keep it central. Keep this. Keep what central? Hold fast to what? Hold fast to that gospel that you just received, that you're remembering. Keep it central above all other projects that you're doing. Above all other programs that must stay central. Don't let that gospel and that evangelism slip away. And then look what he says in verse 3. He says, and repent. Well, what does that mean? Turn back. <laughs> See? Change. Make it about face. And uh, do it before it's too late. Do it before it's too late. Unfortunately, none of these churches heed Jesus' advice. And as a result, in Western Turkey today, none of these churches exist. As we know them. And he says, do that. Repent and do it now. And then look at the consequences if you don't do it. Therefore, if you will not watch. See, back in verse 2, be watchful. If you don't wake up. Therefore, if you don't wake up, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to come upon you as a thief. 
and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. He's talking about judgment. If you don't wake up and change, I'm going to come upon you just like the Persian Empire came upon the city of Sardis in 549 in that sneak attack, and they weren't ready, and they were totally wiped out. He said, this is a sneak attack. When you least expect it, you're not on cam the camera. When you least expect it, he said, I'm going to come. When an hour that you're thinking not, and I'm going to just destroy that church. Not only how he's going to destroy it, but he can do that in a moment's time. <laughs> and uh, he says, when you're not prepared, he said, I can just remove you. Now notice that pronoun there in verse in the middle of verse 3. Therefore, if you will not rock watch, if you don't wake up, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. This isn't only going to be a surprise judgment. This is going to be a personal judgment. This is going to affect every person in that church. So, guess what? The most dangerous person the most dangerous person that this church has to face is not Caesar. Jesus is the most dangerous person this church has to face. You see, he's not only a savior, he's a judge. And if we mock him and we don't do what we're supposed to, he comes and judges. God's not mocked. Whatever you reap, you're going to sow. So the most dangerous person, or the most the danger to this church is not the Roman Empire, it's Christ. And then look at this commendation. Now he gives them a he says a good word about them in verse 4. He says this. You have a few names in Sardis. A few people, I can mention their names in that church. You have a few names, look at this, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. You have a few people, even in Sardis there are a few, now that phrase, even in Sardis, what does that mean then? Even in Sardis there are a few. What do you think that means? Who haven't soiled their garments? I guess that means that most of them have. Most of them have. Soiled their garments. What in the world does soiled your garment mean? If I said Monica Lewinsky, would that mean anything to you? Is she the one that kept that soiled dress? Or one of those affairs that Clinton had, I forget who, with somebody, kept her dress as evidence that she had some liaison with him when he was in president. Uh, in this context, the soiled garment uh, has to do with idolatry. They have uh, had a relationship with idols. They haven't been faithful to their true lover, Christ. 
but they have soiled their garments with idols. And how did they soil their garments with idols? How did they give their love and their allegiance to the idols? By going to the temples and doing what? Offering sacrifices to the idols and eating meat that was offered to the idols. And that's what's happening here. And as a result of that, they're probably doing it with the civilly. And guess what? As a result, they are not getting life. They're getting death. That's what Jesus is saying. So uh, they are having this relationship with the demons, the Roman gods, and that's what it means to soil your dress or to soil your garments. So even in Sardis, there are a few who haven't done it, but most have. But among the few, the remnant, they shall walk with me in look. White. What does that mean, white? Well, that's purity, isn't it? Doesn't every girl want to wear a white wedding dress? She will walk hand in hand with me in white because she's been faithful, pure. For they are, look, worthy. Those who haven't sold their garments are worthy and they will have a relationship with me. Verse 5 says, and that's in the future. Look, they shall walk with me in the future. Probably meaning in the kingdom. The rest won't be in the kingdom. He who overcomes, verse 5. That means who remains faithful to Christ. That's what we've said this means. Remains victorious as a Christian. Even to the point of what? death. Isn't it amazing? He who overcomes even to the point of what? Death. That means if the Roman government says to you, if you don't say Caesar is Lord, you'll die. And you don't say that, you are an overcomer. And Caesar puts you to death. Guess what? You're still an overcomer. Even if you have to die. Remember this whole thing about death. Watch this. He who overcomes, I'm going to just parenthetically say, even to the point of death, shall be clothed in white garments. The person who never gives in to these things shall be clothed in white garments. They've proven themselves to be faithful, worthy. And then look what he says in verse, in the middle of verse 5. And I will not, I will not blot his name from the book of what? Life. Now I want to say two things about this. First of all, these people are faithful even if they what? Die. Even if they're put to death. But what does Jesus say? They've got what? They've got life. Now this is one of the strongest statements regarding eternal security in the Bible. This statement right here. Most people read this statement as if your name can be blotted out of the book of life. But guess what he says? I will what? Not blot his name out of the book of life. The person who is faithful to the end lives a faithful life for Christ. That person's name is not blotted out. Is that what it says? Is that eternal security? But what kind of security does a person have to say 
I believe, I believe. But then they go along with the culture and they do the things that the culture does. And in this case, it's eating meat offered to idols and having those meals in, in Roman temples. That person, their works prove that they are not real Christians. And they've never had life. The people that have life will never lose it. He'll never block their name out of life. But look what he says he will do at the end of verse 5. I will confess his name before my Father, which is in heaven. Have you ever seen that statement before? I'll confess his name in heaven before my Father? Yeah, it's, it's mentioned at least four times in the Gospels. He that denies me, I'll deny, but he that confesses me, I'll what? Confess. Remember Jesus saying that? If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. But if you confess me before men, I'll do what? Confess you before my Father. Well, how do you deny Jesus? And how do you confess Jesus? Let me show you how you deny Jesus. Caesar is Lord. Little idol for Caesar, little thing for Caesar. Caesar, how do you confess Christ? Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's how you deny Christ, and that's how you confess Christ. So, those who do not deny Christ and remain faithful to Him, He will confess before His Father, which is in heaven. Now, I don't know what that means, but I know that's a pretty great thing to have Jesus confess me and you before his Father in heaven. And he says he does it because we're worthy. We don't like that because it sounds like a works salvation. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace, but guess what? A grace that is manifested through faith has works that are judged worthy. That proves that you're worthy of salvation. It's the evidence that you're saved. And uh, he says, because you're worthy, I'm going to confess you. Now look, we had a guy on the Texas Rangers this year who was found worthy of an honor. He was given the Most Valuable Player award because he was worthy. And he was confessed before the entire sports world as the Most Valuable Player in the American League. We will have an actor and an actress who will be given an Oscar. And in front of all their peers, their names will be called out for the best Actor of the Year. And they will be given an award because they're worthy. We'll have a soldier that's shot and hurt in battle. And he will be given, in front of his peers, a Purple Heart. And that's an honor for a person, you know, achieve something of great importance for the world. And that person is given a Nobel Prize. Or a publisher or a writer writes something that's significant and has an impact on society, and they're given the Pulitzer Prize. They're confessed. Jesus says, I'll confess. Can you imagine Jesus himself confessing you? And who does he confess you to? Before his Father and his angels. That's going to be an unbelievable, fantastic day. I can't even understand it. But what an honor that will be. And they'll say, well, you really did deserve it. Because you proved yourself faithful all the way to the end. 
And then he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice it's addressed to the churches, but he doesn't expect everybody in those churches to hear and heed. It's only certain people who are going to hear and heed. And so while the message is to the churches, it's the individual who must heed and hear. So these warnings and these promises are directed to us. And they speak of illusion, what's perceived to be real, illusion, but it's an illusion, and what is real. If you live off of your past reputation and you think you're saved, you've got a false security. Because you're not saved. You're going to die with the church. And civilly won't raise you from the dead. There's no hope for you. But if you are real, if you're the real McCoy, you have eternal security, and your name will never be blotted out of the book of life. And that's the promise that Christ gives to each one of us. And so it's important that we don't cast ourselves with the culture and side with the culture. Well, you're not like those people who say that Christ is the only way, are you? You say, well, I'm not like that. I'm tolerant. No, you say, yes, I believe that Christ is the only way. See, now in our society, it's not eating meals offered to idols, is it? But society all around us is trying to, and Satan is behind it, is trying to get us to deny Christ, to show our true colors. The Christian is the one who continues to show his true colors and says, Jesus is Lord. And the fake Christian, the one who's all smoke and mirrors, and the churches that are smoke and mirrors, they in many ways will deny Christ. Next week, we look at a church called the Church at Philadelphia, the Church of Brotherly Love, and Jesus has not one bad thing to say about that church. That's the kind of church we should strive for. Let's pray. Father, help us not be a church and a people that just appear to the outside world uh, to be Christians. Help us not to believe our own press. Help us not to accept other people's evaluation of us. The only evaluation, the only judgment that's important is your evaluation. You see things clearly. Everybody else sees things from the outside, but you see things from the inside. You walk in our midst. You are not fooled. Uh, you are Lord. And help us to constantly realize that. Help us to, to take this message to heart. Help us to strengthen those things that remain solid in our lives. Help us to get back and think about the day we were saved as individuals. And the day uh, that we welcomed the gospel. And help us, Lord, to, uh, to make that turn and start living that life. That is the life of faithfulness and that's the life of the number of In Christ's name we pray. Amen.